I invite you to turn your Bibles to First Peter today. Uh, we're in a, a series on the book of First Peter, and uh, I just want to thank um, Brother Mark and Ray uh, for preaching in the past two weeks while I was uh, gone in Alaska on vacation. Uh, if you're an outdoorsman, Alaska's the place to go, I'll tell you right now. Um, but thank you very much, brothers, for, for taking over. The last few weeks, um, the Apostle Peter in this book has brought us through, through marriage and then suffering for righteousness' sake. And in the passage today, uh, and throughout this book, the Apostle Peter is talking about suffering as a Christian. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation, right? And so evangelism should never be come to Jesus because he'll fix your marriage, your emotions, um, and you will have health and wealth and joy in this life. Now, there are many blessings, many blessings, um, being a child of God, eternal ultimate blessings in being a child of God. But in this world, you will have have tribulation. Uh, because, because, as a Christian, we've been brought into conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. So now we're moving in the other direction. And so that's why, very often, Christians will be called to suffer for righteousness' sake. So uh, what do we do? Then, what do we do when we're called to suffer for righteousness' sake? Last week, we saw where we are to honor Christ the Lord as holy. And if it is God's will that we suffer, then we suffer for doing good. Verse 16 of chapter 3 in 1 Peter. So that when you are slandered, those who revile you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And by good behavior, it's not just standing up straight and putting on a posture. By good behavior, that means Christ-likeness. That means the way Christ suffered. So we are called to this non-retaliatory, turning-the-other-cheek Posture in the face of unjust, even unjust suffering. And we are to do, when we face unjust suffering, we are to entrust ourselves to the Lord. I think it was, who was I saying that to, Gary? Gary, the other day, I love the word entrust. You're giving something over. You're giving something over to the Lord. So if you are called to suffer unjustly, you entrust the situation to the Lord as you faithfully and humbly obey him. Whether that is you've become a Christian and your husband calls you a hypocrite and slanders you because he knows your past. Or if you have been guilty of grievous sin and are not trusted, yet you are entrusting the situation to the Lord after repenting. Or when your bosses laugh behind your face because you're a Christian and you believe such antiquated things. You entrust that situation to the Lord. So, Peter, now, in the text today, we're going to see the grounds, again, for suffering for Christ's sake. For righteous, for righteousness' sake. Um... The reason we should suffer for righteousness' sake, the Apostle Peter will say, is that because Christ suffered. And he took the path from suffering to glory. And that's where we are today. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Last week as I was listening to, to Ray preach, I thought, I thought how useful it would be to have the text up there because I forgot my Bible last week. So if you forgot your Bible, I think from now on I'm going to have the text up there and Brother Gary's going to follow along. And so you can look up 
and follow along, even if you don't have the word with you. But we'll start in verse 18. Here's the question that's answered. Why should you suffer for righteousness' sake? Verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Amen. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak through me to your people today. Uh, Remove distractions from our hearts, Lord. I I ask that you would help us understand this passage and that it would promote more Christ-likeness in our life when we are called to suffer especially. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. 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 Um, My, Gary, you're going to need to switch that soon. So so you can, I'm just saying, I'm going to call you to switch that verse. I know we're doing this for the first time. Yeah. No worries, we're we're working on it. And the passage isn't up there right now. No, you want it up there now? Yeah, I want it up there the whole time. You just keep, you just follow me throughout the sermon, if you don't mind. No. Gary is a servant. If you ask Gary to do something, he's going to do it. All right. Thank you, brother. All right. So, as I was reading this passage, a lot of you raised your eyebrows, no doubt, because the passage talks about not just the death of Christ, which we in our Western society can tolerate, and the resurrection of Christ, but now in verse 19, in verse 18, starting in verse 18, Jesus is said to be made alive in the Spirit, to have proclaimed in the Spirit's in prison, and then Peter brings Noah into the discussion somehow, and then gets to baptism. And so this is a very compressed passage and it's it it may seem strange to the modern ear um my hebrew professor in college tells us tells a story about how he went to a church one time to visit a church and the pastor was preaching through first peter and he came to this passage and he got up and said to the congregation congregation the text today is first peter 3 18 through 22, but it is just too weird. And so we're going to go to the next, the next section. And my Hebrew professor said, what is going on here? And it it just, it is just an illustration about how in the West, anything unseen, anything that we don't see is just, it's not real in our modern psyche. But we know faith is the evidence of things unseen. Now, I'm not saying have faith in demons, but faith does pierce through. Remember I said a few weeks ago, faith is not opposed to reason. It's opposed to sight. Faith is opposite from sight, not reason. Right? Because sight only takes hold of what is physical. The faith, faith takes hold of what is eternal and what lies behind physical reality. So... We are actually going to preach. I am going to preach this passage. Now, I know the spirits in prison get all the attention when you come to this passage, but the main purpose of this section is to ground the command to humble, to humble suffering in Christ's actions of humble suffering. 
So it, not that our suffering can make atonement like Christ's suffering made atonement, and not that we will be glorified in the sense that angels and authorities and powers will be subjected to us. Nevertheless, the point Peter is making, the main idea here, is that Christ took the path from suffering to glory. And that is a path he pioneered, and that's the path the Christian is called to, from suffering to glory. So Peter's words, I think, are going to show us that this path from suffering to glory... It is the very path that Christ himself pioneered. And if you're following Christ, you will go and walk the same path yourself. Did you know in Christian, the first Christians called Christianity, not Christianity. They called it the way. The way. I am the way. And so the implication being that you go through Christ the way Christ went as well. So first we see the suffering of Christ, Peter mentions. The suffering of Christ. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is one, perhaps the most dense verse, I think, in all of the Bible when it comes to the atonement. He suffered once for sins. The reason, this is just an, a, a theological primer, because I love talking about how sin is juxtaposed with salvation. The problem with sin is that it separates you from God and brings you under the wrath of God. And if you're under the wrath of God, you will die. Adam and Eve were told, the day you eat this fruit, what will happen? You will die. And then when the Lord finally finds them out, it says that he drove the man out of the garden. So we see in the very beginning the penalty and results of sin. It's separation and death. Separation and death throughout the scripture. On the Day of Atonement, two goats were, suffered, were, were sacrificed. One goat was prayed over by the priest so that the sins of the people were imputed to the goat. And that goat was sent out into the wilderness, into the realm of Azazel. And the other goat was sacrificed. There is death and separation again. And throughout the New Testament, we see this, that in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul says that the Gentiles were without hope and without God in the world. And he says that they were dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. So the, pro- the, the reason sin is bad for you is because it brings you under the condemnation of God leading to death, and it separates you from the life and joy and holiness and eternality that is in God. But we see Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So we see that Christ died in this passage as a substitute And the great reformers of the 15th, 16th centuries called this penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning he took the penalty for our sins. Substitution means he took our place. And atonement, atonement is an old English phrase that refers to the fact that his death brought us, well, reconciled us to him. The term atonement means at one meant, brought to one with Jesus, with God the Father through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. So, there is no penance. There is no prayer. There is no good deed. There is no work or sacrifice that can atone for sin. 
Only Christ who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, as a substitute, can bring us to God. This is a problem with our Catholic neighbors, because I was at a funeral a few years ago, and I just learned this. I didn't know this, but in the Mass, they believe that Christ is being re-sacrificed. That the priest is actually sacrificing Jesus all again. And that is, that is not biblically coherent. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We read in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, referring to Christ as the high priest, that every priest stands daily at the service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over again, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you see the problem with the Mass? It's not just different views. It really, it is, it is. I would, I would categorize that as abomination. That a man has the ability to put Christ back on the cross for the sins of other people. Christ suffered once for sins. The purpose now of Christ's suffering. Oh, congregation, please understand. The purpose of Christ's suffering is that you might be brought to God. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Yes, there is justification Yes, there is eternal life. But only because you've been brought to God. Only because now you relate to God. You're not just justified, you're adopted. And you're adopted as a son or a daughter in Jesus Christ. United with Him. So that He shares with you what belongs to Him. It is in that way that you are brought back to a favorable relationship with God. I'm not crazy about the term relationship because it often verges on the with the shade of sentimentality, but I think it's 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 useful because relationship implies you are relating to God. It's not just a status, it's not just a transaction. You've been brought into relationship with God. The apostle Paul in in perhaps the passage that characterizes the gospel the best in 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the heart of the gospel. More than justified, more than declared righteous, but brought back into relationship with God. So think, think not just about tra in transactional judicial categories, which are useful, but press beyond that to personal relational categories to understand how you relate to God. I was reading a good book, I'm still reading a good book, on uh, different worldviews uh, from a Christian perspective called The Universe Next Door. It's worth a read by James Sire. But he has a little chart in one of the chapters that distinguish um, the depersonalized way of viewing your relationship with God versus the personalized way of viewing how you relate to God. And so some examples he gives. View sin 
not just not as breaking a rule, but as a betrayal of a relationship. You get that? It's not just breaking a rule, it's a betrayal of a relationship. I view forgiveness not just as canceling a penalty, but as renewing fellowship. I view faith not just as believing a set of propositions, but committing oneself to a person. View the Christian life not as obeying rules, but pleasing the Lord. I think that is the essence of salvation. You are united with Christ and brought into relationship with the Father. He died that he might bring us to God. And in God, there is life eternal. Now, we move from the death of Christ now to what happened after his death in verse 18. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he proclaimed and preached to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few... That is, an, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Now, this is a, a long digression from Peter's main point of suffering to glory. Um, but if we talked about the death of Christ in verse 18, perhaps we could speak about the descent of Christ here. And in verse 22, we could talk about the exaltation of Christ. So there's a downward and upwardness to this passage. Every commentary I read this week told me that this is perhaps the most difficult passage in Scripture to interpret. Um, and I, I love Martin Luther, the reformer, what he says about this passage. I love, I love how just honest the, some of these older writers are. He says... A wonderful text this is, and a more, a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for sure what Peter means by it. <laughs> I love that. It's wonderful, I just don't know what he's talking about. All right, we, if I was going to teach this passage in a Bible study, I would, I would lay out options for you and, and different ways of understanding, and I would try to make you think. Uh, in a certain way and kind of bother you with one view. I like doing that. I like to see you guys sweat, to see you guys sweat a bit. But this is not a Bible study. I'm proclaiming something. So I'm, I'm going to forego the many views way of teaching this passage. If you have a question about it, I'll talk with you afterwards. But what I want to do is just give, I want to answer the question, who are the spirits who did not obey in the days of Noah to whom Christ preached? That's really the question. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, and these spirits in prison, verse 20, are spirits who did not obey in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared. So, who are these spirits who did not obey? Just... One view I'll give you that is not correct, and then I'll give you the, what I believe is the correct interpretation. Some believe that this passage is teaching that Christ actually descended into Hades to preach salvation to the dead people of the Noahic era who did not obey the righteous preaching of Noah. And they were imprisoned, and Christ after being crucified, went into Hades and preached salvation to this, these spirits in prison. I don't think that is what Peter has here, not only because the alternative I'm about to give you makes much more sense, but it, it also theologically, it would be difficult to understand why out of all Old Testament persons, Christ would descend and preach to this specific era. What about... 
the Egyptians? What about the Babylonians who did not obey? So it just, it seems um, inappropriately specific that Christ would go down and preach to this unit of people. Secondly, theologically speaking, it has a difficulty because it's given under, under man once to die and then the judgment. Right? So I don't think that's what Peter is saying. Although on first blush, it might seem that way. But let me show you how Bible study requires you not just to read the passage on first blush, especially on these, in these difficult passages. Try to find connections in Scripture. That is very helpful. The second view, and the one I'm going to espouse here, is that spirits in prison... Well, before I tell you, do we, let me ask you a question. Do we have some story in Scripture about spirits, spiritual beings, who are guilty of some evil in the days of Noah? Do we have such a story that might correspond to what Peter is preaching? What story... Is there in the Old Testament, maybe in the days of Noah, that talks about spirits being disobedient? The front row here has a, has a good theological mind. I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, Oh, how I would love to teach on this passage for an hour and bother you. And then and then show how it is it's very illuminating. But Genesis 6 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of men came into the, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, the who are the sons of God? This passage refers to sons of God who saw daughters of men and copulated with them, thus producing something called Nephilim, that are referred to as Nephilim, who we see are giants, men of renown. Now, so who are these sons of God? Uh, if I could turn there quickly, I'll do it. Yes, sons of God, sometimes by people who don't want the Bible to be too weird, say that the sons of God is the righteous line of Seth. And the, daughters, and the daughters of men are the world, right? And the sons of God came in and they intermingled and in, in, intermarried with the righteous line of Seth. Um, so I think good godly people believe that. I don't, mean, I don't mean to imply that they're being dishonest. I just don't think that that's what the passage is teaching. Um, I believe <coughs> that the sons of God refers to the heavenly host. Look at Job 1, verse 6, just for a moment, because I want to prove this to you. The sons of God refer to this heavenly council. By the way, if you want more in this, the Hebrew professor I was talking about wrote a book called The Hidden Realm worth a read that talks about 
these things that that sometimes people are uncomfortable talking about, like angels and demons and spirits. The Hidden Realm by Michael Heiser. But Job 1, there's a heavenly council in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Lord, and Satan was also among them. We see the same thing in Job 2, verse 1. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So the sons of God, and we could go to other passages, but just for time, the sons of God seem to, without variation, as far as I can find, refer to Elohim in the heavenly host. Angels of the heavenly host. And so I believe what the the sons of God are angelic beings in Genesis 6 who left their heavenly dwelling, entered into creation, intermingled somehow with humanity in order to find expression through humanity. And these are the angels that are now the spirits who are in prison. This interpretation, I think, is supported almost definitively by 2 Peter 2.4, where Peter says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There it is. Peter is talking about angels who sinned and were cast into a prison to be kept until the judgment. Jude 1.6 is another supporting passage. And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Those two passages were 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 1, 6. So I believe this passage is preaching, Peter is talking about the angelic host who fell, who tried to intermingle with humanity but because this was such a serious abomination in the Lord's eyes the Lord locked these spiritual beings in prison and flooded the earth in order to rid the earth of quasi-human slash spiritual beings for the earth was made for humanity So that's the spirits in prison to whom Christ preached, I believed. Um, They were the ones who tried to achieve expression through humanity in Genesis 6. Now, what did Christ preach to them then? If I'm right about this, what did Christ preach to them? The word keruso in the Greek can mean preaching good news or it could be preaching bad news. So I think Christ went and proclaimed his victory and commanded authority over the spirits in prison. In verse 22, we see that angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to Christ. So when Christ went and proclaimed, it seems to me that he proclaimed authority and commanded Authority over the spirits in prison. So again, this Sons of God story is about how evil agents tried to find expression through humanity, but Christ himself, after dying for sins and accomplishing the Father's requirements, commanded his authority to pour out his spirit into those who have faith in him. And find expression in humanity so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
Christ will enter them through the Holy Spirit and will conform them to his image and bring them to his heavenly kingdom. So the victory is Christ's authority to take humanity, those who trust in him, and make them his. The very thing the sons of God in verse 6 tried to do. Now, this passage, I know this passage is, is strange and, and unfamiliar, and a lot of things are going on in your mind right now, like, do I have to believe this? And Let me just say pastorally, this passage is a reminder that there are spiritual realities that you cannot see. Don't be such a Westerner. There are spiritual realities that we cannot see. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So the wrestling, very often for faith, for obedience, for hope, for love, is not just a wrestling against flesh and blood or the world. Very often, very, um, pardon, often, very often, it's a wrestling against spiritual forces in heavenly places. Now, I know the, the other problem is, uh, and the entertainment industry, industry has put in our minds precisely what demons look like. In the 50s, the devil was always caricatured as a red being, kind of short, with, with you know, a spear kind of fork thing with a tail. And so that was how the 50s categorized or characterized demons. And uh, today we have horror movies and they, got, they have more of a ghoulish presence, perhaps. Um, I think it's very dangerous that you think of demons that way. Because I don't think the demonic works through directly confronting you with their ugliness and horror. I think the demonic works through indirection. Meaning, they take indirect means to steer you away from faith, hope, and love of God. Things like apathy towards the things of God. That, that is suitable. For, for the demonic. Apathy. How can the demonic turn you just to be slightly apathetic to the things of the Lord and take you down a different path? Distraction, appetite, lust, entertainment. I think, I think the demonic is not going to present... It is, it is when you become apathetic to the things of the Lord, I think that's when, that's when a demonic entity is breathing down your neck. It's not when you get chills over a scary movie. That was just a scary movie. I think the demonic works through unseen means like that. So... Be vigilant because we are not ignorant of Satan's devices, right? C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which if, if you have Audible, get Screwtape Letters and listen to it. It, it is such a good listen. Uh, Lewis had a way of, of really penetrating the psyche. Um, but... In Screwtape Letters, he has a demon, chief demon, talk to his underling demon, giving the following advice. He says, do not think that you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. 
The fact that devils and demons are belovedly comical figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any feigned suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe you. It's an old textbook method of confusing them. I think that is so good. The fact that we have such caricatures about the spiritual realities made by people who don't believe these things and mock us for believing it is very deceiving. So, that's the descent. Now, Peter then draws a connection between, after he talks about these spirits in prison, Peter then draws a connection between Noah's Ark and baptism in verse 21. You got verse 21 up there, Gary? Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism corresponds to what? The connection is between baptism and Noah's Ark. How do they correspond to one another? Peter is saying that baptism corresponds to Noah's Ark in that they are both a passing through waters. A passing through waters due to God's grace. Just like God graciously saved Noah and his family through the waters of judgment, so baptism is a, is a depiction of passing through waters, partially. It's also identification with Christ, but passing through waters due to God's grace and coming up and raising to walk in the newness of life. Um, now the question here, of course, is what is saving about baptism? Some people are very shocked when they read Peter's words, baptism saves you. Maybe we should just stop service right now and splash water on everyone to make sure you're all saved. Baptism not saves you. How is baptism saving? Peter says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it is not the physical act of baptism. It's not simply water passing over your body and removing dirt that cleanses you from sin. So it's not the physical act of removing dirt from your body that saves you. What is it? Verse where are we? Verse 21, the end, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So it's not the passing of water over your body, removing dirt that is saving. It's the appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is a physical react. It is a physical act that expresses guilt and the need to be cleansed. It's an appeal to God for a clean conscience. So it's the physical act of baptism itself is not saving. That's just removing dirt. It is rather the appeal which reaches out to God's grace. And baptism is the way we are to express that appeal in Scripture. Today, uh, in evangelical subculture, we, we talk about asking Jesus into your heart. They didn't do that in the first century. They were baptized. That's the way you, that's the way you ask Jesus into your heart. Now, I do, you can be saved without being baptized, of course, but Christ has ordained this act of baptism to express the appeal of identifying with Jesus Christ, dying with him, rising from the dead. And in that act, we are appealing, we're making our quests to God for a clean conscience. 
Now, as, as I'm talking about this, I, I want to share with you that this is one of those passages which persuades me of believers' baptism. Another one of those passages. Because the word appeal is, means request. Or in the Greek, it can even mean pledge. You're even pledging to God. So it's an appeal or request by the one being baptized. And it, to me, it, it persuades me that in Peter's mind, there must be a, conscien- a conscious act on behalf of the one being baptized. Peter simply assumes that baptism is an expression of this appeal. It's just simply assumed without any qualification at all. And so, again, this is just one of those passages, I think, that point us to believers' baptism. And I think it's a precious thing when a new believer or someone coming of age is able to understand the weight of their sin and then go through the waters of of baptism to make that personal, heartfelt appeal to God themselves and stamp this moment in the sand of their heart and saying, this was the moment where I consciously appealed to God. I identified with Christ's death and resurrection, and I know he will take me home. So I see great evidence for believers' baptism in this passage in that the believer being the one baptized is just simply assumed to be one who can make a conscious appeal. Now this appeal for purity and cleanness is made possible by the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father. Verse 22, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So why not? Here's a question. Angels, powers, and authorities being subjected to him. Why not make disciples of Gandhi or the Buddha or Muhammad? Why did, why did Jesus say, make disciples of me? He did tell you why. Who knows why Jesus said make disciples of me? Why should we do that? Okay, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's true. What did you say, Nadia? I said the same. But I also that. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's ruling over all. Let's go to the Great Commission for a minute. Matthew 18, or Matthew 28. Why is it that we should make disciples of Jesus out of all persons who lived on earth? You would answer because, well, he's God, and you would be right. But I'm, I'm trying to go somewhere else here, give you another supporting reason. Verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The reason all disciples our disciples should be made of Jesus is because all authority has been given to him. He is the son of man who approached the ancient of days and received authority and power and dominion. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. 
So do you see, this is significant that it's not just the atonement of Jesus, but the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus means that he is the one who has authority to open the scroll. That he is the one to whom all angels and authorities have been subjected to. That he is the one sitting at the right hand, that means as the power of God the Father himself. And he will wait until his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. And until that time, there is a way and a door that you can enter through faith in him. That is why we make disciples, because he has authority. The God-man who has accomplished what God has required and received from the Father all authority. So, having said all of that, if Christ is the one who suffered and entered his glory with authority, why, what should we do? We are to take the same path. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 16. It's this path of suffering to glory. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Get this, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we might be glorified with him. So, this is why Jesus said, take up your cross. That is your instrument of torture and abandonment to God. That's what the cross signifies, abandonment to God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's taking up the cross. And now, the suffering that you will endure is to... There's, I don't want to preach a whole other sermon here, but there's positive and negative suffering. Negative suffering would be enduring persecution. Positive suffering would be joining Christ's mission and being faithful to Him in the midst of difficulties. And some of us, have much negative suffering, enduring hardship because we're a Christian. Some of us have much positive suffering in the fact, in the sense that we are taking arms in Christ's mission and moving through the realm of sin and death, advancing his kingdom through effort. But this is the path that Christ has ordained and it is a path, since we're united with Christ, that leads to being with him in glory and glorified with him, which is an astounding thing to say. But yet we say amen and amen. I want to call the ushers up, um, Ray and